Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. And just to make sure we have the, the big picture in mind, this is the last snapshot in Luke's second major chunk of his gospel. The first chunk is chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 4, where we, we just call that like the beginnings of Jesus' life and ministry, right? Like Luke was just laying the foundation for his gospel. Then in the middle of chapter 4, up through this point, we have the beginnings of Jesus' ministry focused in and around Galilee. And then after this, we're going to have a long section from 951 all the way through chapter 19, where Jesus is setting the pictures and portrayals of Jesus' ministry in the context of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, ready to head to Jerusalem. And so here we have the last snapshot in that first section about Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee as he begins to call disciples to himself and teach the gospel. And to set this in its more immediate context here in chapter 9, we've seen that the disciples have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've testified that's who he is. He's the Messiah. The transfiguration, the immediate preceding snapshot, has shown uh, that has shown Jesus' glory to Peter, James, and John and confirmed his identity as God's son and affirmed his authority. But at the same time, Jesus has begun explaining to his disciples that as Messiah, as God's son, he's going to suffer and die. Well, that same idea actually is going to get restated in the snapshot that we're looking at here. Um, And you even get that idea of Jesus's suffering implied in the story of the transfiguration where his glory is on display, but they're talking about his exodus, his departure, his death that he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so we're, we're getting this blending together of Jesus' identity as Messiah, but what that means for his mission and his purpose and how that's going to play out. And here in Luke 9, 37 through 50, we get two stories kind of sandwiched together, both of which reinforce Jesus' authority and at the same time show the disciples still struggling to live up to their calling as his apostles and to understand that the way of Jesus, the way that must be their way as his apostles, is the way not of self-seeking and self-promotion, but the way of humility and lowliness. In these stories here in Luke 9, 37 through 50, the disciples failed to exercise a demon, and they failed to understand Jesus' second prediction of his suffering. They show themselves competitive with one another and contentious with others who aren't part of their little group. And all of this, in a very real sense, sets up that that long middle section that begins in 951 and goes through chapter 19, where what, what scholars typically call the travel narrative, this sets it up because Jesus is going to begin pouring more and more energy onto preparing the disciples. And here we see they desperately need it. They desperately need it. They're not quite ready to carry forward the mission and ministry of Jesus just yet. 
Here's the stories that we have here in Luke 9, 37 through 50. The first one happens as soon as they come down from the mountain where the transfiguration happened. Luke 9, 37 reads like this. On the next day, the day after the transfiguration. So that, as I said, likely seems to have happened in the evening or at night. And now it's the next morning and they're coming down the mountain where the transfiguration happened. So on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. So there was a crowd of people at the bottom of the mountain. And Jesus' disciples, he's got Peter, James, and John with him. But the others are down there at the bottom of the mountain as well, waiting for him. And so they're met by a large crowd. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only son. Here, really the pathos in this, like, that the fact that this man's only son is the one that's got a problem, uh, that that's really creates this sense of pathos. It's not just a son, one of his sons. It's his only son. It's it's his potential heir. It's the one who's going to carry on the family line and the family name, all of which was a huge deal in their culture. So I beg you to look at my son because he's my only son. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. So this man's son, his only son, in some way is possessed by or oppressed by a demon that uh, gives him seizures of some sort, mauls him when it leaves. This man uh, is, you know, like, can you help, right? And he says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And this is fascinating because they should have been able to, right? We saw in chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus had given his disciples, the 11, uh, authority over demons. And they had gone out and they had done ministry and they even had cast out some demons. But here, here they failed to be able to cast it out. No explicit reason is given, at least at this point, and I suspect in the stories that follow, Luke may be highlighting part of the problem, but here there's there's uh, no explicit reason given. In Mark's version of the story, Mark highlights prayer, uh, the lack of prayer uh, as really the reason for the failure, But and, and so that may be part of it as well, but here nothing like that is noted. Uh, This man simply says, I begged your disciples to cast it out. They couldn't do that. Jesus is exasperated with his disciples. So, verse 41, and Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring your son here. Um, It seems as if these words are particularly directed at Jesus' uh, disciples, his apostles, for their failure. They should have been able to solve this problem, right? They should have been able to help this man. Jesus knows he's going to hand over his ministry to them. They've they've got to get this figured out, right? And so in his exasperation with his disciples for their failure, notice how he describes them. He lumps them in with the whole lot of unbelieving Israel. You unbelieving and perverse generation, right? Like he, he lumps his his disciples, the apostles, in with that. They, they should have been able to get this figured out. They should have been able to do what this man asked, but they couldn't. So bring your son here. 
And now, while he was still approaching, the demons slammed him, the boy, to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit with a word because of his power and his authority. He doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't take any extra effort. He just speaks a word, rebukes the unclean spirit, and healed the boy immediately and gave him back to his father. That last line, gave him back to his father. I just hear tenderness, compassion. Here's your only son back. Uh, and they, verse 43, were all amazed at the greatness of God. So once again, Jesus' power and authority and greatness is on display. They see what Jesus did, and they recognize it's the work of God, and they're all amazed at the greatness of God at work in Jesus. But while everyone was astonished at all he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, and so Everyone is amazed at this, and at some point, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, As for you, as for you, let these words sink into your ear. Here's something you need to get figured out, boys. Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man, that title of both humanity and yet greatness, when blended with and seen in the background of Daniel 9, for, for the Son of Man is going to be handed over to men. Uh, just a general summary statement that he, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to them. He is going to be overpowered by them. Even though he's the son of man, he's going to be overpowered and handed over to men. And so once again, Jesus's greatness and glory is combined with his suffering. We saw that when Peter confessed him as Messiah. You're right, Peter. And the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. Uh, we saw that at the Transfiguration uh, by discussing his exodus, his departure, and his death, and the new exodus he's going to achieve by means of all that. And so once again, we see it here. Jesus' greatness and his humility and his suffering. And that leads me to make just two observations for us. I think this explains to some degree Jesus' exasperation with his disciples in this instance. He knows what's coming. He knows they are the ones that are commissioned to carry on the mission, and they've got to get this figured out. Now, the second observation is this, um, that amazement and applause at God's power and work isn't always going to be the case isn't always going to be what happens. And Jesus knows that. These people are amazed at the greatness of God, but he also knows there's going to be suffering involved. And so don't get so caught up with the applause and the accolades and the, the sense of celebrity status that you're surprised and shocked and you miss the fact that there's going to be suffering and difficulty in, in carrying forward this mission. Well, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to men. And once again, the disciples just are really struggling to get all this figured out. And so verse 45, they did not understand this statement. In fact, it was concealed from them so that they would not comprehend it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So they don't get it. They uh, they don't get it because it doesn't seem to, I mean, it makes no sense to them, right? Like, it just doesn't fit their categories. It doesn't fit their concept of Messiah. If, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the glorious Son of Man in Daniel 7, 
as he likes to call himself, then what's this suffering thing, right? Like it just it just doesn't fit their their concept of the Messiah. And so they're like, we just can't figure out what he's talking about. But they they don't they know he's exasperated with them, and so they don't even want to ask him about this. Like, what in the world do you mean, Jesus? And so they don't ask him about it. Um, and they they certainly have no intention of playing for quote unquote the losing team. So they're just going to let it lie. I don't know what he's talking about, and maybe someday it'll make sense. We'll figure it out, right? It's sort of that sort of thing. Um, but they didn't ask him about it. That's the end of the first snapshot. Um, that's where it ends. All right. Jesus' glory and suffering and the disciples just not getting it. Now, the next snapshot comes right out of that and, again, shows that these guys are really struggling to understand Jesus and the way of Jesus because here's what happens. Verse 46. Now, an argument started among them. So now here you have these guys. They're bickering and they're arguing. And here's what they're arguing about. As to which of them might be the greatest. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to men. Let's argue about who's the biggest and the best and the greatest among us. And so these guys are are arguing about which of them might actually be the, the greatest, the most important, the most prized person among Jesus' team. But Jesus, verse 37, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and brought this child and had the child stand by his side. This child is going to be a living object lesson for addressing the disciples, the apostles' problems of competitiveness and self-promotion and self-exaltation and all that. So he brings this child and stands the child next to him. And children were deeply loved in Jewish homes. And like they, they were valued and loved in their homes, but at the same time, they had no social status and no rights. So it's not that they were unvalued or unloved by in the Jewish families. Jewish families loved kids. That's a byproduct of their worldview that grows out of the Old Testament, right? Uh, so the kids were loved. They just had no status and no rights. And so the child here is an example of lowliness, lowliness. And so here's the point Jesus is going to make by bringing this child to him. Verse 48, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. In other words, you need to be the kind of people who who isn't enamored with greatness, who who isn't, you know, drawn to celebrity status, who isn't trying, wow, look at him, and isn't, you know, going to welcome just celebrities and famous and important and powerful people. No, you need to be willing to have the spirit that sees the the importance of a child and will welcome even somebody lowly like this child. So whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, that is, receives God who sent Jesus into the world. So if you receive this child, you receive me. If you receive me, you receive the Father. And then he says, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. You want to argue about greatness. You want to understand true greatness. Here's, here's what I mean by great. I mean lowly. I mean uh, self-giving. I mean self-sacrificial. I mean willingness to be unimportant, right? That's what, that's what great means in Jesus' kingdom. So instead of finding, fighting about who's great, Welcome and accept the lowly. True greatness is embodied in self-lowering, 
not self-promotion. That's the point. Well, in that context, uh, apparently John was like, oh, here's another idea. I got a question for you. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. So we saw someone doing good work in your name, but he's not part of our little group. So we tried to stop him. And Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And Luke seems to present this as another example of the pride and the superiority that showed up within the, the apostles. But here it shows up not in, not in trying to promote themselves so much as in stopping someone who's not one of us from being a part of what we're doing. Like, hey, you can't be part of that. That's our job. That's, that's us, right? It's this competitive spirit of self-importance that so often infects the human heart. And so Jesus tells the apostles, look, whoever is not against you is with you, is for you. So don't stop them. We want the work of God to go forward. And it doesn't matter if, if you get the attention for it, if you're the ones doing it, or if it's somebody else who is promoting Jesus. It, it doesn't really matter. Let's not bicker and fight about that. The main thing is that God's kingdom moves on. So let's wrap up this section just with a couple of reflections that brings all of this together. The disciples had struggled, this whole section we're looking at, it began with the disciples' failure to cast this demon out of the boy. Well, it seems like uh, Jesus sees the solution to whatever the problem of the disciples was as understanding that he's a suffering servant, right? That's why he pulls them aside and says, now look, as for you, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to men, which really suggests that pride is part of the problem of the apostles. Pride is what's hindering the work of God in and through them. And the stories that Luke follows it up with show pride at work in the apostles, pride towards those outside the group. And all of this shows us that the disciples must eliminate that proud spirit of self-reliance, glory-seeking, and divisiveness. Not just the disciples back then, but disciples today must get rid of those same sorts of things. And we do this by letting Jesus' words and Jesus' example sink into our ears and into our hearts. He was handed over to men. He was the suffering servant, betrayed by one of his own and killed by his very people. It's this pattern that needs to mark the disciples of Jesus. It's this pattern that needs to mark us. This self-giving spirit is the way of Jesus, and it must be our way as those who follow him.